All right. Open up your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts once again. We're going to be in chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. Let's ask God's help this morning. So we look at his word once again. Father, help us as we look to this text. May you magnify the Lord Jesus Christ in our heart. May you sanctify us by your word. May we grow closer to Christ and know what you would have us know today. Prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, which will be at the end of the message. Help us, Lord, know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we examined how the Apostle Paul experienced a moment in his ministry in which he was very frustrated and discouraged. He told Jews, even at one point, I'm done with you. I'm just going to the Gentiles. Well, that's what Paul wanted. It's not what God wanted. Because the Lord told Paul in verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. There are more people in the city who are mine, Paul. They don't yet believe. You must keep going. You must keep preaching. You cannot quit. I have chosen them from before the foundation of the world. They will believe. Just keep preaching. Don't shut up. No one's going to hurt you. So what does Paul do with that? Well, this is where we pick it up again this week in verse 11. After hearing that from the Lord in that vision, he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Paul did exactly what God told him to do. And he stayed longer in the city of Corinth, which is in southern Greece today. He stayed longer in the city than any other city he had been to up to this time of his life. He was there for a year and a half. But did God keep his promise? Would no one hurt Paul like they did in Philippi, where they beat him and threw him in jail? Were they not going to harass him? Well, maybe. Because the promise is, is that they would not be hurt. They would, no one would hurt Paul to attack him in that way. But would God keep his promise? Well, let's see. Because usually Paul couldn't go a more than a week or two in any other city without being persecuted. Now, we're not told Exactly when the events of verse 12 happened, because we're given a summary. He was there for a year and a half. But look at verse 12. I believe it kind of happened kind of near the beginning of that time after he had this vision. In verse 12, we read, But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now, Gallio is the head of the local Roman Senate. Across the Roman Empire, they had different provinces. 
as we have seen. The province where Corinth is located is named Achaia. And they had a proconsul there. He was the head of this local governing body. He would be like the local judge that would be there to uphold Roman law. If you had an issue with someone or someone broke the law, they would be brought before these people. And so the Jews made a united attack on Paul to bring him before the tribunal. They didn't lay a hand on him. They're accusing him before this governing body in Corinth. This man, Gallio, who according to the historical record, was the proconsul in Achaia in the year 51 AD. So we know exactly when this happened. Gallio is there and they bring him before that to bring him down. And what is their accusation? This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now, they're not talking about their law. They're talking about Roman law. They were not very happy that there was another religion, Christianity, being proclaimed contrary to their message. See, Judaism was not endorsed by the Roman Empire, but it was tolerated. In fact, it was against the law to worship any way that the Roman Empire did not tolerate or approve. And so they knew that the Romans did not approve of Christianity. So they're trying to go and get Paul in trouble to get him to leave the city. And they bring him up here for trial. Wait a minute. This wasn't supposed to happen, right? God said that don't shut up, keep going. Nobody will harm you. Well, they haven't harmed him. God didn't say they wouldn't put you on trial, but they're not beating him up in a mob like they had before. They're not picking up stones or trying to whip him or beat him like they did in Philippi. What did God say? Keep going. I've got many people here in this city. Don't give up. So Paul gets put on trial. Look at verse 14. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, so they bring him before the trial. They make the accusations. And Paul is getting ready to defend himself. But before he was able to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. Before Paul could say anything in his defense, God was already there for Paul. God had made Paul a promise. He was not going to let this mob stone him or beat him or do anything to him because God had a plan in the city. God here is intervening to keep his promise. And how does he do so? He works in the heart of this man, this proconsul, Gallio, to protect Paul. It's simply amazing. Gallio has no interest in protecting Paul. He has no motives and no reason to let Paul off the hook. 
He refuses to deal with the situation, instead saying, it's not for me to decide. Deal with it yourself. And the Jews could not legally do anything. They had to bring him before here. And here we see God's protection. We worship a sovereign God, amen? A God who is not just in charge of everything. He is in control of everything. The scriptures even say that he has the heart of kings in his hands. In Proverbs 21.1, we see this. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Yes, it was God working in the heart of Gallio to accomplish his will and his promises. Gallio didn't even know what was going on. But God was intervening to keep his promise to Paul. To save a people in that city who had belonged to him before a second had, clicked, had ticked off any clock. Yeah, Gallio's heart is a stream of water. In his hand, and the Lord turns that stream whatever way he pleases. Trust me, it is not a waste of time to pray, church, to pray for evil leaders to do the right thing. We must go before God and plead with him for those who are elected to lead us. That they would serve the Lord. That they would serve righteousness. That, they would, that, that God would intervene to withhold their evil plans. Gallio had every reason to say, whatever, this guy, who is this guy? Who cares? Do with him what you want. But he didn't. And it was because God intervened here. He says it's a question about words and names I'm not getting involved. See, the Romans just saw Christianity as an offshoot of Judaism, like a sect within it. I can't be bothered with this. But what God has decreed can never be upended by men. This is what the sovereignty of God means. You and I can go to bed tonight and sleep in peace, no matter what is on the news. Knowing that God is sovereign and that God's will will happen. We see this here in this trial of the Apostle Paul. God has decreed that the people in Corinth, whom are his people, who don't even yet believe, will believe, and Gallio will not stop it. So he takes his heart and Moves it in such a way that Gallio says, I'm out of here. So Paul will not be harmed. Case dismissed. But somebody has to pay, don't they? The mob is angry. So what do they do? Look at verse 17. And by the way, Paul was a Roman citizen. So they really couldn't do anything to Paul without legal process. Verse 17, and they, that's the Jews who had brought Paul to be on trial, they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio 
paid no attention to any of this. The Jews here were not happy that Paul could not be convicted. So what do they do? They blame the ruler of the synagogue. And pretty much what this is all about, and more than likely, Gallio, who is supposed to be the arbiter of justice here, looks the other way while an innocent man gets beaten, which goes to show you he could care less about what happens. And further shows you that it was God who changed his mind not to hurt Paul. But probably what happened here is that they blamed Sosthenes, who was their leader, for not bringing a strong enough case against Paul. And now they have to deal with him, and somebody has to pay the price. So Sosthenes, who is the leader of the synagogue, gets beaten instead by this angry mob. But now, after this, look at verse 18. Paul stayed many days longer. And they took of the brothers and set, seal, set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. Now, this is an interesting fact. So this is why I think it happened near the beginning of the year and a half, many days later. He was there a year and a half. And it was God's confirmation to Paul. Remember last week we saw he was discouraged, he felt weak, he felt fearful, he felt trembling. But here in the beginning of that time, God gave him assurance of his promise. God told him that this promise will last. And Paul, here is proof. You're just walking away from being on trial in front of the proconsul of Achaia. That the odds of that happening before were not very likely. And Paul sees this as the sovereign hand of God, which allows him to stay in the city much longer, preach the gospel, and win those people whom the Lord said were his. Now, here's something that's amazing. Sosthenes, who is this guy? Well, he's the leader of the synagogue. We all know that. Much later on, when Paul writes his epistle to the first Corinthians, when he writes his letter to the first Corinthians, let's look at first Corinthians one, one, who writes the letter with Paul? Look at this. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother who Sosthenes. Isn't that tremendous? I have many people in this city. Well, who are they? The leader of the synagogue. Now Paul, through his preaching, has won both leaders of the synagogue. Crispus, who we saw last week, and now Sosthenes. Sosthenes, in those many days later that transpired, became a Christian for Paul to call him a brother. Say, poor Sosthenes, he got beat up. Yeah, that was a shame. But probably what happened, and here's the tremendous thing about the sovereign God. We never want bad things to happen to us, do we? No, no one does. No one wants to go through bad things. But as Christians, we trust the sovereignty of God to accomplish his will in our lives. That day on trial, Sosthenes was there to persecute Paul. 
As a result, he was persecuted, which was probably used by God in his life to get him away from the synagogue, to get him away from those Jewish people that beat him, to probably go talk to Paul more. And through that beating, Sosthenes became a Christian. I have many people in this city, Paul. See, Paul wanted to give up. And yet, God knew before time began that what? Sosthenes was his. Sosthenes would become a believer in Christ. By the way, don't you love that name, Sosthenes? I sound so authoritative when I say it. It's like, I don't know, the syllables or I don't know what is Sosthenes. Just say it with me. Ready? Let's just say it together. Sosthenes. That's a great name. Great name. Yeah. Sosthenes. So there we go. If you have, if you have no one, anyone that's expecting, recommend the name Sosthenes to them. Okay? So many days longer. And in these many days, what happens? The church of Corinth is formed. God saves his elect people. And Sosthenes is one of them. And when Paul writes this letter, hey, I'm writing this to you, and guess who? Sosthenes. Oh, I have many people in this city, Paul. Don't give up. You get, now you've got two leaders of the synagogue, Crispus and Sosthenes. He became so influential that he was there with Paul in his greeting to the church of Corinth. But only God can do something like this. The doctrine of election is the greatest confidence I have in pastoral ministry. It's not up to me. God has a people. God will save his people. I must be faithful to do what God has called me to do. Right? So, because how can they hear without a preacher? That's what Paul says in Romans. How shall they, how, how shall they hear? Unless someone sends them. God has a people. He has a plan to make that all happen. Oh, that's why God didn't want Paul to give up. He has a people. And church, we must not give up here. God has a people in Bradenton. God has a people in this county. God has a people that we don't even know yet. We must keep going. This is why we send missionaries to the foreign field. This is why we support and send thousands of dollars every year to so people in Egypt. That's where the Henslers are. The people in Costa Rica, that's where the Robertsons are. And the other Robertsons are, letting, are heading for Africa this fall. This is why we support them. And so many other local organizations has, that proclaim the gospel. Why? God has a people. Let's get the gospel out and God will save his people. So after many days, Paul leaves Corinth. He takes Aquila and Priscilla with him. That's that tent-making couple that he had met in Corinth. And they go to Syria after a year and a half. Now, Syria is this Roman province of Turkey. If you know where Turkey is, that's, that's where that's at. Look at verse 19. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue, and he reasoned with the Jews, like he always does. Now he's in a new town, Ephesus. And he left them there. But he inclined... 
But he, he reasoned with the Jews. Now listen to this, verse 20. The Jews in Ephesus are hearing Paul's message. They're understanding. Some of them might even become converted and become Christians. Look at verse 20. When they asked him to stay, remember, Paul was in a town, out of a town. Weeks, days, usually persecution drives him out. It was just a year and a half in Corinth. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. Wait a minute, Paul. He declined. I I can't stay here. No, I got to go. Look at verse 21. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. (laughs) He's like, just, it kind of like Paul had a little flashback. A year and a half ago, he was in Corinth. Ready to leave, ready to give up. That's what Paul wanted. I'm out of here. I'm not talking to you anymore. He gets to Ephesus and he's like, no, I can't stay. And he's like, you know, on second thought. If God wants me to come back to you, I will. If the Lord wills. You think Paul learned something in Corinth? I think he learned a lot during that time. I think the Lord matured him greatly. If the Lord wills. He had seen Jews be saved in Corinth. He saw Gallio have his heart changed by God. He wasn't attacked the whole 18 months he was there. And Paul knows that the reason all those things were true, because the Lord willed it to be true. Because God is sovereign. The God who was sovereign to keep me in Corinth will be sovereign to have me return to Ephesus if he wants me Two. Does God have a people in this city? In Ephesus? Of course he does. We have a whole letter to the Ephesians. Paul would return to Ephesus on his third missionary journey. And get this. Stay there three years. But for right now, I got to go. But. I can't tell you I'm never coming back. Because if the Lord wills it, like he did for me in Corinth, I will be back. We must do God's will. This is the lot of the Christian life. We all know what we want, but we must ask ourselves, what does God want? What does God want? He's the only one that matters. We serve him, not ourselves. 
Our God is in the heavens, the psalmist says. We read that in the beginning of the service. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. I just want to focus for a few minutes as we close this sermon. But don't get too excited. We're not closing it just yet. (laughs) If God wills. That's the lesson Paul learned. And I believe it's the lesson that we must learn as well. We live under the umbrella of a sovereign God who directs our path and our steps every day. What does God want? What does the Lord will for me? Sometimes we fall into traps saying, oh boy, I was really lucky today. Can I tell you something? There's no such thing as luck. Lucky should not be in the vocabulary of a Christian. Because to be lucky implies that there was no chance of this happening and it just happened out of nowhere. Wow. But we've just seen that that's not true. God is in the affairs of mankind every minute, every detail. God is telling a story, and you're a part of it, and none of it happens by chance. It all happens by the design of a creator, of a designer, of a God who wills it to happen. Like he tells Isaiah, I've known things from of old. My purpose will stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. So Paul says, yeah, I'm out of here, but wait a minute. (laughs) Actually, I probably will be back if God wants me to. Not, Not by luck or by chance. Hey, I just happened to be stopping in the neighborhood, Ephesians. No. If God sends me here, I will. And, the, and, the, and James addresses this whole concept. And I want us to look at this because I believe we forget these facts. You and I are so foolish to think that we are in control of our lives. But we're not. We're not. Look at James chapter 4, verse 13. It's a scripture reading we read earlier with Fred. In James chapter 4, I'll just give you the context because that's always important when you're interpreting a passage. The context of James 4 is James is dealing with them about their pride. Their pride. And he gets to these verses in 13 through 16, chapter 4. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You can't for sure know what will happen tomorrow. You you can't be confident. Now, this is not saying you can't make plans. We we all know that. But what's rooted in a statement like this is not necessarily the verbiage. It's the pride behind these words. 
Oh, I will go here and I will do that and I will accomplish this and I will do this. As if it's all up to you. James says this. You are a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. You're not even promised the next 30 seconds. Yeah, plan all you want. Have a vision. But as you walk that life in the days and years ahead, your plan, realize, could be upended by a sovereign God. Because you can't control. And I think we've all been there. Have you ever had your plans upended? Has, has your life totally gone to plan? Ever? And so to think that we're actually in charge of all those details implies that we're sovereign. And that is pride. James says this, instead, verse 15, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. And also do this or that. Ah, we actually said this in our business meeting, if you're paying attention, in January and this past Wednesday. We have a big plan in the future. Who knows when? Five, ten years of adding on a new sanctuary as our church continues to grow on that end of the building. And it's going to cost a lot of money and a lot of planning. And we would be foolish if any of us in here would say, oh, that's definitely happening. God may not want that to happen. And if he doesn't want it to happen, it won't. We're not promised tomorrow. We're not promised anything except what's in the goodness of the character of God himself. So instead of living like you're in charge of your life, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. Not if I'm lucky. <laughs> if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. And that kind of attitude subjects yourself to a God who is sovereign. Living under the umbrella of our sovereign God. I know most people's favorite passage. If you ask them, what is your favorite Bible passage? They'll probably tell you what? Proverbs 3, right? Proverbs 3, 4, 5, and 6. What does that say? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Some people translate that as, I just got to set my mind to something, and God loves me so much, and I'm so special to him. He'll give me whatever I want. No. No. What's it saying? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. There's no trust in you to accomplish your plans. Do not lean on your own understanding. Your plans do not depend on your wisdom or smarts. 
Because God can do great things in spite of you. And he has. And he will continue, continue to do so. I already asked you, have things ever turned out worse than you planned? Yeah. Now let me ask you another question. Have things ever turned out better than you planned? Yeah. And it's a good thing God didn't listen to you. Right? We're like often like the child at, I'm speaking from experience, like the child going through the toy, toy aisle with our parents. Right? And we see something we want and we ask our parents for it. And when they say no, what do we do? We whine, we cry, we throw a tantrum, right? But I need that. And what does mom and dad say? You don't need that. No, you already have plenty of stuff at home. You're good. No, you don't understand. This will make me happy. You don't need that to be happy. You already have enough at home. Our parents know better for us than we think. That's hard to know, and you probably won't learn that till later in life. So if you still don't think your parents know what's best for you, just w- wait a few years, okay? I'm talking to the teenagers in the room. All right. <laughs> Do not be wise in your own eyes. And listen, what's the promise? He will make your path straight. He will direct your paths. Why? He will accomplish his purpose. It's another way to say, if the Lord wills, just fear the Lord. Feel the, fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. Trust him. If the Lord wills, it will happen. What makes us think we can live any other way? In fact, if anything is more humbling than this, listen to this. If you don't think that you ought to live like that, If you don't think living a way where if the Lord wills is the way to live, just listen to this. Then what you are saying is this. I am better than Jesus. Because how did Jesus live his life? According to the will of God. He says in John chapter 4. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's my food, my my meal, my meat, what keeps me going, what keeps me alive. What motivates me is what? To do his will. In fact, Jesus even prayed like this in the garden. And we all know it very well. Jesus is praying in the garden and we see a glimpse of his humanity. Of course, he's the God man. He's God in human flesh. Truly God, truly man. Here we see him. But he also knows that his disciples are listening. Some of them are sleeping. For some of the prayer, some all the prayer. But Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and he prayed. And what does he pray moments before he's about to be arrested? Father, if you are willing. Did you catch that? If you are willing, remove this cup from me. What? What he's about to go through. Absorbing the wrath 
of God for sinners. If it be your will, let this cup be removed from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What Paul learned in Corinth is that he is serving God, not on his terms. He is serving God on God's terms. He leaves that city when God tells him to leave that city. And he won't leave a second before God is done with him. And Jesus knew here. Jesus' passion. Not my will. God, may your will be done. May we live, church, under this great expectation. We cannot let circumstances dictate to us what we think we want and know. We must trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. One of the things that pleased him, as we saw in Isaiah 53, was it pleased him to crush his own son. It was the will of the Lord to bruise him, to crush him, to put him to grief. To not live under that reality is a sin of pride. That you're in charge, that you know better than God. That's not a place you want to be. May the things that God allows in your life, whether they be good or bad, be seen to you both by the same hand. God is loving. God is, God is kind. God is patient. God is good. God is sovereign. So that we could say, yeah, all things do work together for good to those who love him. Why? Because he's willing our sanctification. That's what God ultimately wants for us. To be holy. And he uses these things. He uses people in our lives. He uses events in our lives to do such a thing. But as we focus now, as we close the service, the Lord Jesus said, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, yours be done. And Jesus lived with that truth. He went to the cross. He died for our sins because it was the will of God. Paul told the Ephesians, I'm, not, I'm, I'm leaving, I'm not coming back. Well, actually, I just learned a lesson. I'll be back if the Lord wills it. Father, help us now. As we remember the Lord Jesus, as he was willing to die for us, as he was willing to go to the cross Despising the shame for the joy that was set before him, he endured it all for us. 
God, may you help us know these things and this truth. May you kill our pride. And that we may live every day dependent upon you. And according to your will. In your name, amen.